Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Sense City, Las Vegas, and the Silver State Canine Training Center, your host, Cameron Ford. Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of Canine's Talking Sense. I first want to thank everybody for all of the downloads and the interest in the podcast and the enjoyment that it seems everybody is getting from the information that I'm attempting to share through the interviews that I've been doing with the various guests that I've had on the show. And I can tell you, there is so much more to come, so many great episodes I've already recorded recently, and some new ones I already have on the books to do uh, coming up. So, with that said, I also have a great announcement, which is those of you that follow me on social media know that I post a detection dog question of the week. And it's not every week, but when I post it, it's it lasts for a few days. Um, from that has stemmed uh, a lot of questions or people sometimes maybe wondering why I'm asking these questions. Is it to create arguments? Is it for sensationalism? Things like that. What I can tell you is I have always posted these questions because this is what our industry talks about, but never sometimes in a more public fashion where we can get more feedback, more input, more suggestions as to why something is a certain way or why we believe something a certain way. So when I have put some of these questions out there, you get all kinds of feedback. And despite all the noise that occurs, there is usually a common thread or a common theme that comes from those posts. And in that is pretty much the truth. And when I post questions or I ask questions to, you know, the industry, it's not about whether something I uh, follow or something I do is right. It's about seeking the truth. You know, science is about what is true, not about somebody being right. Um, can somebody be right? Of course. But with that said, it's all about finding what is real, what is true, what is validated, uh, what is backed up by data. So with that said, I have reached out to additional people now, a group of subject matter experts, both from the practitioner dog handler trainer side of things, but also from the research and academia side. And I'm so happy to say I have individuals now that will be participating or contributing to these questions um, to help out. To name a few, uh, Simon Prinz, Armin Winkler, Dr. Paula Prada, uh, Dr. Nathan Hall, Dr. Brian Hare, Dr. Michelle Mon, um, Ariel Peldunas. Speaking of Ariel, she is actually the guest of this podcast Ariel has had quite a extensive career. She started off as a Marine Corps uh, military working dog handler. Once she got out, she got into uh, the contracting world, worked as a cadaver dog handler, but deployed to the Middle East on missions to attempt to locate remains of uh, fallen service members, 
or other U.S. citizens that may have been uh, missing or lost from either uh, contract work or other type of activities out in those areas, as well as soldiers from any other type of engagement in those regions. Uh, pretty austere conditions, tough work. And then from there, she went to college and furthered herself and got her bachelor's degree in behavioral science. And she's currently looking at building upon that and going for a master's degree and maybe even a PhD. But Ariel is definitely a student who went from practitioner to the academic side and has really uh, enhanced her skills as a trainer. Uh, I hope this interview you guys get to listen to. Uh, she expands on upon a, a lot of great topics as we discuss, uh, gives her point of view, her experience, and some of the academic aspects that she's learned by uh, listening to some of these great professors that are out there on animal behavior and sciences. So enjoy the episode. If you have, of course, any questions, feel free to reach out to me, Ford at SilverStateK9.com, F-O-R-D, at SilverStateK, the number 9.com. We are also now adding more advertisers to our podcast, not to inundate that, but to offer resources to those of you in the detection dog industry. So whether it be seminars or workshops or potential products that are very useful uh, for your different type of detection discipline or people who have training locations, uh, training centers near where you live. So if you are interested in having your services and or products uh, that are detection dog related, uh, put as a advertisement on our podcast, reach out to me via the email I just listed and we will do what we can. We are doing basically introduction, uh, very low rates to kind of build and help our audience have some good resources out there. So without any further ado, enjoy the episode, Ariel Peldunas. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Talking Sense. Today, I get the enjoyment of letting you guys hear my interview with Ariel Peldunas. She has had an extensive history and background with working dogs, uh, going from a military background to where she's at now, uh, working a lot with young dogs and puppies and things like that. So without any further ado, I will introduce the audience to Ariel. Ariel, welcome to the show and give us a quick little background about you. And like I said, how did you got to uh, where you were to where you are now? Well, thank you very much, Cameron, for inviting me on your podcast. Letting me talk a little bit about myself and my training. Um, so I've been training working dogs almost 18 years now. Uh, but I have, I grew up with a mother who trained dogs as well. So uh, I was just kind of indoctrinated into the lifestyle. And then I decided college wasn't for me at the time. And I was studying animal science and just didn't feel like I was on the right path. So I joined the Marine Corps and became a canine handler. I uh, handled dual purpose bomb dogs in the Marines. And then after the Marine Corps, I went to work in North Carolina for Tar Heel Canine. And that's where I got more extensive experience training police dogs. Um, as a military handler, most of our dogs came with 
a fair bit of training. Some were greener than others. Um, so at Tar Heel, uh, I learned kind of the ins and outs of, of the business and selecting green dogs and training dogs from the ground up. Um, after that, I've worked on a number of different contracts with the military. Some were more oversight administrative where I was uh, working with requirements and doing site visits and helping to guide the direction of the program to support the war overseas. Um, and then I also did some contract work with my cadaver dog where I, I deployed with her to Iraq and Afghanistan. Wow. Um, and then I came back from that and I did some, worked on some contracts. One, I was helping to write a manual for working dogs. Um, and that allowed me to see dogs with different units and, um, basically just be a fly on the wall, uh, for a lot of training exercises and pre-deployment training so that I could see how the dogs are being utilized and what the units that were requesting those capabilities, what they needed to know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what was irrelevant. Um, so we kind of came up with a manual for the, the infantry so that when they needed dogs, they could, um, you know, consult the manual. Um, and then I also worked on a contract training off-leash bomb detection dogs that were modeled after the Marine Corps IED detector dogs. Okay. Um, after that, I um, spent some time in West Virginia at Logan Haas Kennels, and there I spent a lot of time working with puppies and young dogs, developing a training program there, um, kind of taking a lot of what I had learned um, from different trainers and uh, mostly focused on detection and uh, obedience training using operant conditioning principles and um, developed a training program there. And after I left there, I decided I wanted to pursue um, more of an academic background. So I went back to college, um, studied biology and neuroscience and, um, took animal behavior and, um, psychology classes that were focused on learning and motivation and, um, operant conditioning behaviorism, um, to try and kind of advance my knowledge from an academic perspective. Um, and also, wanting to learn more about physiology and olfactory capabilities from um, a neuroscience perspective. So with and, that said, I was going to ask, yeah. <laughs> what, what led you to that? Uh, what made you say, you know what, let me go back, let me go to college and learn these things. What was, what instigated that for you? Honestly, it was, I was feeling a little burnt out on the working dog business and I mm -hmm. wasn't sure what path I wanted to continue on. So I've always wanted to finish college and I was always really interested in science. So biology seemed the best path and I've always been interested in the brain. So I actually mm -hmm. went to study, I was planning on studying affective disorders like depression, um, anxiety, PTSD, mm -hmm. and um, alternative treatments for that. That's kind of where my research was directed, but in the process, of studying that, I started learning more about olfaction and scent receptors and neurophysiology and, and realized, you know, I, I kept coming back to dogs and scent detection and training. And, you know, then I started taking classes that were, um, you know, in the psychology department focused on learning and motivation and um, operant conditioning. Mm -hmm. And it kind of just brought me back to dogs, but 
with more of a scientific perspective. And I realized that, you know, this is really what I love to do. It's what I have a passion for. Um, and I can incorporate my education interests with my training interests. And, um, I graduated last May and started my own business this year, um, focused a lot of, on pet obedience. Uh-huh. And I feel like that allows me to pursue my, you know, I like to tinker and I like to sure. take something that I know how to do and see if I can make it better or different. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do that with my own dogs or I have some clients I work with um, for more performance and working dog tasks. And then um, the bulk of what I'm doing right now is pet obedience. So what would you say, this is like a two-part question for your college side of things. Yeah. What was the most important thing that you felt you learned through that that process of your formal education? And what did you like the best? Are they the same thing? Is it different? What would you say was like a most impactful uh, part of that learning in, in the your academia side of things? And then again, like I said, what was the most important? This is going to sound kind of general, but uh-huh. I think studying things more closely, um, doing research, reading tons of research papers, um, sitting in classes with people who are much smarter than me and have a much deeper academic background. I realized I thought I knew a lot about a number of things and I don't really know. I mean, I thought I knew operant conditioning inside and out and classical conditioning and, you know, that's easy Uh and I'm going to take this class and it's just going to be a piece of cake. And that was one of the hardest classes I took because I realized I don't know as much as I think I know. Sure. Um, And I think also in, you know, we, as detection trainers often, or as trainers in general, but I, I hear it a lot in detection, we think we know what the dogs are smelling or mm-hmm. thinking or why they're behaving the way they are. And I think I kind of realized we don't even know how odor compounds interact with Correct. scent receptors. Yeah. You know, I mean, and how can we say that we know, you know, I know the dog should smell the odor right here where I put it. Yep. Um, and it made me really think about how important it is to both have a firm understanding of animal behavior, of learning principles, and of the science side of it. So you mm-hmm. can say, okay, you know, the dog is telling me one thing. This is what I think the odor should be doing. You know, being able to evaluate the in- environmental uh, variables, mm-hmm. um, as well as looking at the dog's behavior from an objective perspective. So I think, you know, it, going back to school made me realize I don't know as much as I think I do. And I really need to make sure I'm a perpetual student and I don't ever get to a point where I say, well, I, I know as much as I need to know and I'm, I'm good. Sure. No. And you hit the nail on the head is what we deal with constantly in this career field or this this type of work with dogs is there's so much that we believe as compared to what we know. And mm-hmm. the belief drives us on a lot of things. Uh, it, it, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, the passion behind what we do and that belief tells us to do a lot of things, whether there's actually information behind it or not. And what was that feeling like when you went from having the, that kind of background or those beliefs that you had to all of a sudden when you started applying 
uh, and learning the scientific and the psychological approaches, what did that do to you or, you know, how did that uh, affect you? Um, well, luckily I had one professor that I actually, I took um, a lot of classes with him, actually two, he and a good friend of his in the psychology department. So I had um, Dr. Waters in the biology department and Dr. Stallman in the psychology department. Um, and I spent a lot of time just talking to them. So luckily I had a good enough relationship with them that even though it was humbling to realize, well, I thought I knew a whole bunch about this stuff and I don't really know anything. Um, and rather than feeling, rather than getting defensive and shutting down and, you know, kind of saying, I'm just going to go back to doing things the way I, I have always done it. I tried to spend more time with them and say, you know, teach me, tell me, explain to me why I'm wrong about these things. Um, but I think human nature, there's always that part of us inside that we don't like to be wrong. So there was often times, whether it was something I didn't get right on an exam or I, you know, raised my hand and answered a question wrong in, in class or, um, just having a conversation, something came up and I realized, oh, I was way off. I had to learn. And I think that was very important for me as well to learn how to deal with that feeling that I don't like being wrong, but it's okay to be wrong because this is a learning experience. And now I can, you know, being wrong is enabling me to become better and to become more knowledgeable. So I feel like, you know, I mean, you learn, you learn about all different subjects in college, but Dr. Waters actually said to me, you know, your undergraduate degree is about learning how to learn. And that's, a, that's what I took away from it is I have to find the areas that I'm weak in and the places that I'm wrong. And then I have to, pursue those areas until I am more well-informed than I was yesterday. Um, and that's how we learn and we progress. For sure. And, and one of the things I always teach, and I'm doing it right now in the current trainer's class I'm putting on, is I'm telling the students, mistakes is still learning. Allow the dog to make mistakes. Mistakes is still a pro process of the learning you know, curve here. And we don't need to jump in and prevent any mistakes from happening or have to help the animal out when the mistake occurs. Allowing them to make the mistakes is still that major part of the learning process and makes the dog more reliable. And uh, I think I feel a lot of that is lost, you know, many times just because of the tradition of dog training has always been don't allow the dog to make a mistake. Make sure you control this. Make sure you control that. Make sure you present here, present there. If they mm -hmm. sniff at something too long, pull them along, keep them going, don't stop. All these different things that all it really does is keep that dog using you for information versus using that yep. environment. Make mistakes in that environment and then learn from it versus mm -hmm. us trying to put the dog in a little bubble world and say, no, 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 we'll protect you from all this kind of stuff. The only path that you have is the perfect path and yeah. it just doesn't exist. And the things, I mean, you can explain it better, but what you've learned on the academic side going through those classes is the evolution of learning is through mistakes. Mm -hmm. And especially I, when I teach people detection or tracking, any kind of scent work, mm -hmm. I emphasize you are not going to know where the dog should indicate. Yeah. You know, the reason we use dogs is because we can't find 
what we're asking them to find. So if you have to tell the dog exactly where to sniff and exactly what to do, and like you said, you never allow them the opportunity to learn what's wrong, then they're never going to be able to do what's right independently. Correct. And there's, um, there's a book that I, I know some other trainers have, have read it, The Talent Code, and it talks about um, myelination of neurons and how practicing skills basically at the edge of our ability. So where you're making, you know, you're not going out and you're fa- and failing, but mm-hmm. you're also not going out and doing everything perfectly. You're practicing skills in that realm where you make some mistakes and you're able to fine tune your skills. And I feel like that's what I try to apply with dogs. Um, I don't set them up to fail completely, but I also don't set up training to make it so easy that it's just a breeze for them Um, where they have to struggle. They have to problem solve and then I can mark the behavior I want. Mm -hmm. So I stay out of it as much as possible. I mean, if I could automate training, oh yeah, um, you know, for for scent work. I mean, there's some tasks sure. that I, I want to have that relationship Absolutely. with the dog. But when it comes to scent work, I want the dog to be as independent as possible. Well, the biggest thing I try to get people to understand is if you are the information source on a significant level, but yet in the real world, you're the most clueless point of information in the <laughs> process. What good are you? by keeping that interjection of yourself in the training aspect. If you create that reliability of you for information, and yet when it goes to it's time for the real world, there is no, you, you are the worst sport, uh, spot for information. So why should, why should we put this, build this into the dog? Or when the dog becomes more stressed and problem solves, it looks to us for information. And yet we're the worst spot. It's, it's, it's just bad methodology to, to apply that. I love what you're doing too, where you have the handler stand behind the blind. Oh yeah. Um, and it, you know, it doesn't, it looks like it's, um, completely blind. I don't even see a trainer in the room. No, yeah, I'm, I'm behind um, them. So they yeah. don't get to use me either. Yep. So I, I mean, that is really the true test of is, is your dog using you for information or is the dog using the odor? for information? Yeah. And it, it, it pushes the comfort zone. I mean, each, you know, like I said, the trainer course going on right now, these are people with good experience with dogs. And when I put them behind the blind, that was difficult for them. What was even funnier was the peanut gallery, the ones that who actually had run it, um, they could not control their body language when they would see the uh-huh. dog <laughs> get the source because of course the handler wasn't hundred percent sure where it was at. The uh-huh. them reacting. I even had to tell them, like, look, stop. See what I'm talking about? This is uh-huh. where even the human influence. And luckily enough, the dog and the person didn't even see anything. But it was. I said, you guys can't even help it yourself when you see the dog come into odor. You react. And uh-huh. you know, had that been in a different setting or what have you, the dog gets to see that and uses that for information. So yep. we are horrible about telling the dog, whatever we perceive the dog is in odor, right or wrong. And, and they are great about picking oh up my on gosh. the most minute signals. Yeah, that's the stuff that, like I go over all the time with, with the cognition stuff with Dr. Hare from Duke. It's it's all these things that we use that the dog makes inferences from and then they applies that into their problem solving skills to get to the right answer. So mm-hmm. no, it's it's a big it's a big deal with you know, it's a fun little experiment. You know, put yourself in a position where you can see what's going on, but the dog can't see you and have the dog go work. And mm-hmm. it's funny at first, some dogs struggle 
with you being out of sight because they they feel they need mommy or daddy, you know, as part of this equation. And when I take that part of the equation out, we really get to see does the dog actually understand what the task is, which is search, odor identification, and then response to odor identification. And, mm-hmm. you know, you start seeing gaps that exist really quick when you just take one variable out of there, which is the human, and see truly how reliable is the animal at that sequence of events. Um, I'll nerd out for a minute. Sure, go right ahead, <laughs> please do. Mind. Many, many um, people like to nerd out here on this episode, <laughs> or these kind of episodes. So. Um, it's, not, it's not too much, but I have a, a client that I'm, uh, we were working on training his dog to do detection, and the dog has extensive background in obedience and protection training. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's very tuned into the handler and handler cues have been an issue mm-hmm. for us. And uh, we were talking about why his dog is struggling and he was saying, I just don't understand how many times he's encountered odor and we've marked it and rewarded it. Why is he still focusing on me? Mm-hmm. And I said to him, you know, it has to do with the salience of the cues. Yep. And even though you think, well, uh, he's sticking his nose where the odor is and, you know, he should smell it. I said, the odor is actually um, not, you know, not very intense as compared to all the signals that you're giving him, even though, even though you're trying to you know, maintain a very sterile posture and, and body language, he's so tuned into you that, you know, just the, the twitch of your finger, the change of your expression is so much more salient and, and speaks so much more loudly to him than odor that he's relying on that. And as soon as we take that away and I, you know, I make you go in the corner and, you know, turn your back to him, he is lost. And I think a lot of people could benefit from running exercises like that to see, you know, the, the dog may be getting some information from the odor, but it's overshadowed. Uh, one of your posts, people were talking about blocking and overshadowing and, that, that was super interesting to me when I, I learned about that. Um, you know, we think, okay, well, I'm presenting, I'm putting the odor with a toy or the odor with food, or I'm telling the dog to sit when he's an odor. He should be learning that odor is the important thing. Well, the, the toy, the food, your cue, that's all going to speak more loudly than the scent. That's unfamiliar to the dog, especially. Um, and then that's very so, hard. Uh, again, we feel that we're helping, you know, the, the handlers and trainers feel, well, I'm just, you know, showing them the path. But the problem is mm-hmm. the path has all these road signs that say you, when we really want the road signs to say odor. Now, of course the argument will come in. Well, it works just fine on the road or, you know, I make fines. And here's the difference between in the professional side, between the bomb dogs and the drug dogs. In the drug dog world, there's a lot of human bias, and I'm going to say it in the sense of how you got to that location or that traffic stop. You've placed odds in your favor that the outcome is going to possibly be when you deploy your dog, you might find something, you know, whether it be the area that you've conducted your traffic stop, it's a known drug area or the, the individuals, once you've made the traffic stop, you figured out, Oh yes, I know who this is. This is so-and-so and they have a drug pass. So, you know, when you deploy your dog again, the odds are probably greater than not that you will find something narcotic related or something that has the narcotic odor present. So, therefore, the dog will do what it should do when it's trained is to, to look, respond to that. Whereas in the explosive world, 
many times other than being in a war zone, you are not in an environment that's favorable for finding an explosive device or explosive material. And you don't get to uh, see, you know, there's, there's nothing that's kind of helping the odds of a find. So mm-hmm. you find out real quick how good is the dog at the task and how proficient and how, how long will they stay working for uh, location of target odor when there's little in the environment to offer that. Other than, again, if there's a lot of handler cues, then the dogs may start doing things. But many, many bomb dog handlers will tell you, yeah, there isn't a whole lot that we find. Other than, let's say, with the, the handlers who now use their dogs to locate weapons and or uh, spent shell casings and things like that. Now, what's kind of unique is you got to do cadavers. So that, to me, then also can speak volumes about training because most times the dogs are worked off leash. Yes, you are in an area where it's expected or probable to find uh, cadaver material. But talk about that. Talk about having to trust your dog and really rely on your dog. And in the environment that you worked in was even more austere because you were technically still in a uh, war zone, per se. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a tremendous learning experience because prior to going overseas, um, and I know you've spoken on this as well, most of my searches, well, most of my training searches were set up to test how well the dog finds something. Mm-hmm and not how well the dog works when it doesn't find something. And when I got overseas and you know, I had done operational searches in the States, um, but they were more geared towards, we have an area of interest. um, You know, it was either a smaller area. I did a couple larger searches, but it, it was nothing like what I experienced overseas Mm -hmm. um, both because of the harsh environment and also just because of the, the length of the searches. Um, and we would carry drop aids with us. That's what we would call them. I don't know if that's the term that that you use, but essentially, um, you know, I didn't like carrying it on myself because I felt like, you know, it's a pretty strong odor. The dog knows I have it. So I would try to have someone else. Um, we would go out with bomb dog handlers. So I would try and have them carry it. And if I felt like we had been searching, Mm -hmm. I mean, there was times we would search for hours and not find anything. Um, and in the beginning that was, it was an issue. You know, I could see that my dog would kind of reach her threshold where, okay, we've never searched this long without me finding Mm -hmm. something. And I could put the drop aid out to be able to let her find something and reward her, but it wasn't the same because it was not, it was so artificial, you know, stuff we're looking for was typically buried for a reasonable amount of time. We were looking for some historical stuff. Um, you know, people that have been missing for many years. Um, so, you know, a a can with some bloody tissue in it is, is not the same, but you know, I mean, for being able to kind of re, uh, rejuvenate her drive that that would help. But what I found was doing once I, once we realized what we were dealing Mm. with, we allowed our training to reflect that. And we did a lot of long searches where the dogs weren't finding anything. Um, and I call it work ethic. Mm. And I found this with the, with the bomb dogs when I was in the Marines as well. Um, it just wasn't quite to the extent as with the cadaver work. 
um, the dogs just, they kind of develop what I refer to as work ethic. Um, you know, it's like the searching itself becomes rewarding, Mm -hmm. even if they're not finding something. I mean, if I had to talk about it in behavior terms, I think the, the behavior of searching becomes inherently rewarding. So the dogs just, they're out, they're doing something. And then when they do find something, you know, they do still indicate and enjoy the reward, but the behavior becomes inherently rewarding. Yeah, because there's some dogs who love searching. (laughs) Yeah. And I I think, you know, I'm not sure what the original question was. I may have gotten off track. (laughs) (laughs) It was basically in the sense of what what was it that you found that was really helpful? Uh, You know, this is, I'm kind of adding the question now, but what was really helpful or what did it feel like to have to go from you know to that kind of environment where you you're going into it with you're not necessarily knowing if you're going to find something or not you have you find out really quick you know is your dog proficient at this or is it not like i was saying with the drug dog handlers you know they may have some things in their advantage when they deploy their dog in a search as opposed to a bomb dog handler or sometimes even a cadaver dog handler where you have this enormity of a search, but you have to trust your dog and know, is there something there or is there not something there? Mm -hmm. I think twofold. Um, one, well, I'm training and making your training as much as possible, reflect your operational environment. And I realize we have to pass certifications, you know, the, the military, we had to go in and we had to find nine odors and then it went to 11 odors. Um, you know, with the, uh, cadaver certification, I had to meet certain standards, but beyond that, I think you need to really evaluate the environment that you're going to be searching in, how you expect your deployments to look and train to, to mimic that. And what, what we started doing was we would go out to search areas because um, we, we had training areas that um, we could kind of mimic mm-hmm. what we were going to be. So, I mean, it's pretty much desert for yeah. the most part um, and, or, you know, and kind of run down buildings and bombed out places. So we would go hide stuff days before and then let it yeah. sit and, you know, try and protect it. So no animals could get to our training aids. And then we would come out and we would, train on that and try and mimic, you know, have the bomb dog handlers go through and clear the area first. And then we'd come through. So I think that just habituated our dogs. It's probably not the best word. They, you know, made more of a habit of just like, okay, I come in, I go right to work. Um, There wasn't a whole lot of like pumping them up to get them, you know, because there's no sense in pumping them up and getting them wound up and drive if we're going to be searching for four hours. So, um, you know, it really had, I had to change the way that I approached searches. Um, and I also realized the importance of finding a dog that, you know, selecting the right dog for the task. I think for dogs that are going to be doing shorter searches and, um, you know, you get them out of the car, they search a couple of vehicles, they go back in the car. Um, you can use a different type of dog than the type of dog that's going to have to go out and clear acres and acres and, and work and, and, you know, in in the heat and in, you know, very dry conditions. Um, So I think it just made me realize there's different considerations um, that need to be taken into account. And then just, you know, going out and and getting to know my dog. I mean, I've 
knew her super well, but getting to know her in that environment and in the training scenarios, seeing what happens with different variables and learning her signals when I can tell she's Mm -hmm. not searching anymore and she's just kind of going through the motions and when I need to give her a break and have another dog. So you bring up a good point, which is, and I've talked about on other episodes as well, having your training match your reality. Once you've done imprinting and the dog knows odor and they can do, you know, the normal searches and it, let's just say it's reached certification, making sure Mm -hmm. that your training matches reality. Also in that, how important, and speak a little bit about the controlled negative training. You know, setting up training, whether known or unknown to the handler, that contains no odor and handlers understanding and reading their dog properly when there's no odor present. Because obviously, if you're searching a large area or like the example you gave for up to four hours or so, how do you, uh, you know, one, read the dog properly to know that that area is effectively searched, but then two, understanding the dog's behavior of no odor present. Even when you've got things mm-hmm. like distracting things like other animal smells or trash or any of the number of things that may affect a dog and, and cause it to sniff longer or be interested in stuff like that. So how do you deal with and how important is the controlled negative aspect of training? I think, personally, I think it's more important than, I mean, you don't want to miss anything. I'm not going to say the dog not false indicating. I don't know what term yeah, we're no, using today. That's what I'm sure. speaking about. When the dog gives their trained indication behavior when there's correct. no odor present. Um, so I'm going to call it uh, a false sure. indication. I'll make sure yeah. to get your email address so they can yell at you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Certainly, you don't want the dog to miss a a bomb, and you don't want to be letting drugs stay out on the streets. And, you know, if we're out searching for a missing person or, you know, body parts or a grave, we don't want to miss that. But I think it's just very neglected to put handlers in the position that they have to feel comfortable saying, my dog is telling me there's nothing here. Um and be able to read their dog when their dog says, oh, you know, I've been searching for a while. This kind of smells interesting. Maybe, um, you know, and I think a lot of that just comes from the emphasis that's put on the, the train final response, um, final indication. Um, so I think in training, once the certification is done, I like to, I like to set it up so the handler doesn't know that there's no odor in the area because I think that that in, a, in and of itself makes a huge difference. If you know, you, you act totally different, even if you try not to. Um, but I know myself from being an operational handler, when you have to start working your dog on the street, you know, on a deployment, it's nerve wracking to start clearing vehicles or you know clearing search areas and say there's nothing there especially when you have a bomb dog uh you know that to me was the hardest thing because people's lives are at stake you know if some drugs get through the gate it's not a big deal if some if a bomb gets through the gate it's a big deal um so if i can get comfortable in training knowing okay you know what my dog 
is telling me there's nothing here. I'm confident in that. Um, or my dog showed interest in this area, but I know that's not the same change of behavior I see on odor or my dog is showing me interest and he looks like he just can't get to source, but I'm pretty confident there's odor here. Um, and you just, you need to practice that. I, you know, that's not something that you wait until you get on deployment or on the street to start working on. You need to practice that in training and you need to tell someone that you train with, you know, they're going to set up the training searches for you. And sometimes they're not going to put something out there and they're, they're going to set up the, the search area and walk away and leave you to do it on your own. And you're going to come out and you're going to say, okay, my dog found something here, here and here or didn't. And, you know, as trainers, we don't want to do that because, well, what if we reward the dog in the wrong place? Or what if we don't reward, you know, what if we don't reward the dog when he's on owner? Oh. And those are all things that you need to conquer Absolutely. in training and know what, what your plan going to be. Are you not going to reward your dog? Are you going to reward your dog? And I, I think that, you know, there's no substitute for just make yourself uncomfortable in training and get to that next level with your dog where, you know, I mean, I'll be honest with the bomb dogs in the Marines. We had to get comfortable with that when we were on deployment because we, we didn't practice, you know, with my cadaver dog, it was different because I was doing operational searches in the States and I had to just alter that a bit. And I also did contract searches with my lab, um, who was an explosive bomb dog. Um, and you know, I mean, the, the more I do it, the more comfortable I get, but there's still always that there's those times where you just say, I'm not sure. (laughs) And then you have to also be willing to make a judgment call and say, okay, I have a bomb dog. If I'm not sure, I'm going to tell someone, you know, my dog's interested, but, you know, I didn't get a, a final indication, but I think someone should check this out. This episode is brought to you by Exet Canine. Exet Canine possesses a broad range of unique expertise in canine training and handling with applications both in scientific and operational capacities. Exet Canine also specializes in third-party independent canine certifications, assessments, and validations for both U.S. government and private business. Their staff understands individual requirements and is proficient in providing optimal canine solutions. Their team has active DOD secret and Department of Homeland Security sensitive security information security clearances. We pride ourselves on upholding the highest standards of integrity, discretion, and professionalism. Also at Xset Canine is the TAD device or the training aid delivery device. Xset Canine is proud to introduce the first commercial product, the training aid delivery device created by U.S. Army and is designed by canine trainers and scientists. The TAD can bring your canine training to the next level. The design considerations ensure all components of the TAD are NASA outgassing compliant. It's inert, it's highly compatible with most training aids. It's rugged enough for daily use and training. Cleaned according with EPA standard methods. 
capable of even being decontaminated and deodorized of human scent and any other environmental odors. The TAD device is an awesome device. I have seen it firsthand. It's a product that allows your training aid to be protected, but it allows it to off-gas the target odor that's inside it without being contaminated with outside scents. So there's a membrane that allows odor to get out, but not odors to get in. So I can tell you firsthand by seeing it, this is a great device. This is a great company. If you get a chance, go visit their website, Xset Canine. That is spelled www.excetk, the number nine, dot com. Again, www.excetk, number nine, dot com. The website will also be listed in our show notes and also in our social media feed. Silver State Canine, located in fabulous Scent City, Las Vegas. Are you a handler looking to become a trainer? Attend our Train the Trainer course. Are you somebody that's looking to become a professional detection dog handler? Attend our handler courses. We also understand that not everybody can make it to Las Vegas. So what we're going to do is we're going to put the show on the road and we will come to you. We have a number of workshops and seminars as well as the Train the Trainer course that we can now provide at your location. So do you want to learn something like the canine cognition test, the ones that Duke University created that now I use and teach people to use for their selection dog testing? These are very valuable tests that give you a great insight to your dog's intelligence, such as uh, the memory skills, the ability to make an inference and problem solve. In addition to that, I now have my detection using cognition class. This is taking that same information that we know about that dog and then using that to our advantage to train a detection dog. This methodology creates better training and creates a more reliable detection dog. Also, besides that, we also offer our understanding odor class. This is for anybody. This is whether you're a nose work person or a professional. We also have our nose work search strategies class. We also offer our explosive ID and homemade explosive familiarization course. And like I said, if you are somebody looking to become a trainer, we offer our train the trainer course. We will come to you for a week and do this course with you at your location. For those interested in any of these courses and more, go to our website, www.silverstatek9.com. That's silverstatek, the number nine.com. Or shoot me an email, ford at silverstatek9.com. Top Dog Police Canine Training and Consulting, Canine Supervisors Course. This class will offer you the best outline of information you will find in any supervisor course throughout the country. Their instructors will teach you from experience and have the resumes to back it up. You will see the training in the following areas. Canine legal update, supervisor legal update, handler selection, problem handlers, canine selection, canine unit pros and cons, why do canine units fail, SWAT versus canine, liability versus reality, critical incident review, canine unit record keeping, class scenarios with a hands-on approach, and then canine deployment reviews. These two instructors, Ron Cloward, who is retired lieutenant from Modesto, and Bob Eden, the one many of you guys know from the International Canine Conference, from the CATS program for record keeping, both of these gentlemen have a vast level of experience, especially when it comes to managing, supervising, 
canine programs. They are well diverse in their experience with agencies throughout the United States that they've helped or consulted with. Let these individuals help you by you attending their canine supervisor's course. To receive more information, just go to their website, topdog97.com, T-O-P-D-O-G-9-7.com, and look up the supervisor course information. We will be hosting one in October in Las Vegas. Uh, we'll have some details to follow, and that will be posted also on social media. Again, if you get a chance, check out Canine Supervisor's Course, hosted by Top Dog Police Canine and Consulting. Well, it's funny. You, you bring up uh, that thing that everybody talks about. They're, they're either scared to death of not rewarding the dog when they had odor, but I think what a lot of times I should say it back this way, they're more scared to death of rewarding the dog when there's no odor present or a distractor odor or what have you that they feel, oh my gosh, if I do that, the dog's ruined now. He's going to you know, alert. It's going to alert to everything after that. And that's not the case. Or mm-hmm. I pulled my dog off odor. I, I didn't know the alert wasn't strong enough. So I didn't reward my dog. I pulled it off. And again, they, they, they act as if these dogs are these fine pieces of China that if they do one little thing, it's going to ruin the dog. Mm-hmm. And if, like you said, and we'll get to this coming up, is the selection is done properly, these are things you don't worry about. Because, again, if your training is sound and you're applying good scientific psychological techniques, the times when this occurs, it's not earth-shattering. It's not going to ruin the dog. Again, the, there's variables that exist that you can't control. And people always have to remember when you're using a dog, it's increasing your probability of finding something. It's not a certainty game. Stop trying to mm-hmm. put your dog into this 100% ratio kind of concept that if you do this or if you don't do this, it's, it's, it's so, so negative that you have to avoid it. No, there are going to be times where there's going to be mistakes. There's going to be times where you may have rewarded at the, on a non-target item or you didn't reward when the dog was uh, did find something. And if the dog in training is sound, this isn't a big deal. One of the things that I do in, in, in training to kind of bridge that training to reality is as a trainer, I'm actually going to post this tomorrow or the next day on social media. So by the time this episode airs, it'll already be out. But I call it detection roulette. And I have three training areas set up, three or more, typically three. So an area, maybe let's say it has luggage in it. The other area is vehicles. And the other areas, is, let's say, is building or rooms. Two of these areas have nothing in it. Only one area has target odor in it. I let the handlers, when they show up, choose which area do they want to search. Do they want to do luggage? Do they want to do vehicles? Or do they want to do the rooms? They're not doing all three. They're just doing one. And it's on them to pick which one they want to do. Again, I will not go with them. The areas aren't all that big, but it's large enough to get a decent search out of it. Once you're done with your search, you report back to me as a trainer and say, if you found something, if you didn't find something. And you really have to, and again, you chose the area. So again, I removed myself as much as possible as a trainer. All I did was create the areas to search. It was on them to choose which area they searched and whether they found something or not based on what they picked. So doing little you know, segments or games like that really help build confidence in the teams and have them trust their dogs and how to learn how to work their environment without the help. And it's training. So if they do make a mistake or if something happens that you know, isn't perfect, it's not the end of the world. But then the biggest thing they get out of it is they learn something. 
you know, and, mm-hmm. and they have to learn how to use their dog in an operational manner versus it just being training and they get a hide in every location they go to and so on and so forth. So that's just one game I do that helps build that confidence or, or helps bridge that training and reality concept together. But it's, mm-hmm. and I, I think, you know, in addition to um, learning how to handle those situations, you, as a handler, you learn a lot about yourself as well. You know, we say, oh gosh, yeah. you know, we talk about how much the dog relies on mm-hmm. our cues. Well, as a handler, when you're in there by yourself and you don't <laughs> have a, a trainer, you learn real fast how much you rely on the human cues as well. And, you know, I, I wonder oftentimes if, if handlers and trainers, you know, if they experience that before they're out actually working their dog on the road, because I think that, you know, that it's a wake up call when you're standing there and, you know, your first instinct is to look over your shoulder at your trainer Uh to know if your dog's right or not. And no one's there. And you have to, (laughs) now it's a kind of reckoning moment where Mm -hmm. you have to learn to. Okay. So on the same line of things, what would you say is the, the biggest thing you've taken from your college training or the college background and education that you got, what did you take from there that you've applied most often to your actual detection dog training? What is something that you, you know, learned or let's say got better at once you went to the academia side of things that now you definitely use regularly, frequently in the training of detection dogs? Hmm. The first thing that comes to mind is thinking about the salience of Mm -hmm. different cues. And, um, you know, I used to start off using just scent tubes or boxes, you know, all things of this, you know, the same containers. Um, And I started thinking about how, you know, just the container and, you know, the, the odor that the dog deposits mm-hmm. on the container and, um, any distractor odors that may be present, how, how I need to really vary those, um, session to session, not wait, you know, okay, let me get the dog proficient on an odor in this mm-hmm. context. And then I'll start, you know, then I'll take the odor out of the tube and I'll put it yeah. in, you know, a different container. Um, I, because, you know, the dogs get so fixated so quickly, you know, I'm used to finding the odor when it's in this particular container. Yep. So if you stay in that context Mm -hmm. for too long, when you go to move the odor to something else and start trying to, you know, do more realistic Mm -hmm. hides where it's, you know, not just in a container and, you know, in the middle of the room, the dogs really struggle. And I think, I often see clear odor recognition and a change of behavior, but then the dog is looking for the familiar container. Um, so I've found, I mean, just from a you know practical training application, just vary my containers right away and do, do whatever I can to make sure odor is the only important piece of information. It doesn't matter what is containing the odor. It doesn't matter what else is with the odor or what's not with the odor and you know, what else is present in the environment. Odor is what's important. Um, and also where, you know, I, I don't know, you know, our, our training methods probably vary somewhat. Um, but I do think in your 
podcast with Dr. Hall. Um, yep. Yeah, Dr. Hall. Um, I think it was, yeah, that's because yeah, you yep, only did one with Dr. Hall. Um, <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure it was the one with him where you were talking about, uh, where he was talking about when people pair odor with food and with toys. Um, I had done that previously and then learning about salience of cues, I realized that the food is going to smell stronger than the, the odor and the toys are, gonna, you know, the dog. And plus that's a familiar cue to the dog, whereas the odor is unfamiliar. So, um, changing up how I introduce odor, if I'm just doing classical conditioning to associate the odor with, um, an appetitive yeah. stimulus. And so describe that to, just, just so listeners can understand, describe what you do now. Like, uh, like what's the process? So this is day one, you got odor, brand new dog. What do you do? I don't put, a, well, so if I have an adult dog, I won't, I won't put anything with the odor. Um, or if I'm going to associate it with a toy, um, I, I mean, PVC is the only, I would do PVC retrieves. Um, but it's dog dependent. I mean, some dogs, if they're not, I get dogs that come to me for training and they don't have, you know, they're not selected the way I would want them to be. But, um, I like to build the hunt drive in the dog, um, separately. And then when I introduce odor, um, it's not with like a big bowl of food underneath it. Um, now if I'm starting with younger dogs, what I've done with litters of puppies is presented the odor first and then the food. So have the food like in a closed container, you know, if I can like separate it, put it in a different room or so they're not smelling the odor of the food and then present the odor, let the odor predict the food. Um, and I mean, I've done that with puppies as young as, you know, when they're still nursing on the mother, where I would take the mother out, wipe her down with odor, put her back in. Um, and then, then I would present the odor and then put their bowl of food down and then have them actually like put the odor upwind, let them work to the odor and then put the food on top of the odor. So all of the training is odor comes first and then, you know, either I can mark the dog going to odor and present food or a toy. Um, I can do indirect reward if the dog understands that system. I can, you know, just classically condition without even asking for a behavior, just you smell the odor of the food. That means the food is coming. Um, and if I do have a dog that needs work with hunt drive, I will use PVC with odor in it, but that presents some issues uh -huh. of its own. Um, so with that adult dog, I'll interrupt you real quick. With that adult dog, you're basically, so your first step is doing, let's say, hunting games that are self-retrieve, where whether it be the pipe or a towel or, yeah, I'm just throwing out a couple of different things, but basically the dog hunts, locates the target stimulus, which has odor on it or in it, and then the dog engages and play with you. Is that correct? Or is that, am I, am I off? Yeah. And you know, I, I will do that. If I have a dog that has that, like uh -huh. my puppy now, I don't know what odor I'm sure. going to put him on yet. So I just do, I'm just working sure. on his hunt drive with just, you mm -hmm. know, a, a ball, um, no odor associated with it. And he doesn't, you know, I don't need to introduce the odor, but, um, but yeah, if the dog gets the odor in the, I use the pipe. Yep. I don't like the towel. Um, but 
let them mm -hmm. retrieve it mostly just to, to build that association that the odor will yeah, lead you reward. to yeah. the thing that you want. Now, once you got yeah. that down, talk a little bit about how you do you, you pair, uh, the behavior that you want, the indication, uh, to with odor. So I teach the indication. Usually I start it separately. Um, just to, and I don't start it in any like detection context. I just want to get the behavior um, because I don't want to be fighting with the dog to do the behavior with the odor present. Um, I, in previous training instances, it was, you know, kind of correcting the dog into a sit on the odor. And I just felt like for me, that was, there was some contradiction there where I want you to go to the odor. I want you to be driven to get there, but now, um, yeah, and there's going to be some aversive stimulus applied when you don't do what I want. So I like to get the dog very clear on if I'm going to do um, a sit and you know focus stare or a down and a focus stare. Um, I can teach that outside of detection, and I can just get the dog fluent in the behavior. Um, and it's not going to be associated with any other odor. It's just you know do this on a target. I can use you know a, a any kind of target I want just to teach the dog the behavior. Um, and what I find is once the dog has the indication behavior, once they have some association with odor, if I start it, sometimes I don't start the association with odor and I just go right into put it in a container and mark yep. the dog going to it. Um, but I find pretty quickly they offer the indication behavior anyway, because it's been, so heavily sure. reinforced. So I'll just mark the dog going to the odor, mark the dog going to the odor. And then once the dog is consistently going and staying, once I add a bit of a pause in there and the dog says, okay, you know, I'm here, what do I need to do? Usually pretty quickly, they offer me the indication behavior because that's in their inventory of behaviors that have been reinforced. And then I mark and reward that. And mm -hmm. usually a few times of waiting for the indication behavior and marking re and rewarding that I'm getting what I want. Um, yeah. And then you pair it back with the searching for the target. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I, you know, and that's where if I have a dog that's really um, hunts really well and naturally, I, mm -hmm. you know, I can just have them searching for the odor in the containers and marking them going to it. But some dogs are very visual. Some don't have that background of, um, you know, independent searching yeah. and, you know, ideally if I was raising the dog or selecting them, I would select for that, but I don't always have that ability. Oh, yeah. So, so on that kind of continuing a little bit further, uh, what do you find more useful? There's always the big debate food versus toy. What's your thoughts? Well, so I've started puppies and for sure with, with puppies on odor, I use food, um, just because it's more value, higher value. I can ma manipulate the value of it more easily. Um, and there's not issues with having to get it back from a puppy. You know, they eat it, it's gone. We can do another repetition. I can get more repetitions in, um, adult, older dogs. Again, if I can start it with food, I like to, because I feel like I can, Get more repetition. It's clearer in their head, yeah, because they're not as 
stimulated. Exactly. You know, they're not overwhelmed by drive and they're able to think and process. Um, but the reality is there's some dogs that just don't have great food drive. And if it's kind of a, a toss up between, well, do I withhold food and see if I can build value and, you know, should I try a different, you know, should I try a different kind of food? If they have really good toy drive, I can work with that. So, um, and I do transition to toys, um, because I do, well, my lab would be, you know, perfectly fine as a, a food reward dog, but I feel like the herders typically value a toy over food yeah. once they're adults. Yeah. So. Yeah, similar to you, what I do is I, I generally start with food to get, the, like you said, the repetitions to get sometimes better focus um, and clarity in the task because, again, they're not overly stimulated and motivated. Uh, when there's a toy introduced, they kind of lose their mind sometimes. So if I can get some good reps in with some food, so let's say step reps one through four, I have food, but my last rep, ends with a toy. That's one of the techniques I use because that way I kind of play with both. And then once I have clarity of task and I know the dog is doing it, then I just go straight to toy. Um, and again, it's, you, we're going to go back into this in a second, which is the selection. You know, I've selected dogs who have a balance with motivation for food and for toy and play, and therefore they're more apt to, they're flexible. And with that flexibility allows me to have more solid training and continuity of what I want the dog to do. And like you brought up uh, a little bit ago, one of the lessons you learn from academic to professional is context. You know, staying in a context too long creates a dog who relies on that context versus allowing the dog or in training you introduce, get, you know, uh, repetitions in and then change the context again. But the target is the same. And the dog understands this. No, okay, this is what I'm doing. It's not a contextual thing. It's a target thing. I am searching or looking for uh, hunting for this target, despite the context it may be in or how it was introduced. So all of those things, you know, what I find is a good balance between food and toy allows you flexibility, and then the proper selection of a dog gets you there uh, from the beginning. So, in a nutshell. You know, what are the the top things you look for when you let's say you're looking at uh, I'll, do, I'll do two phases. What do you look for when selecting a dog younger and let's say a little bit older? Added to that, what do you prefer, the younger dog or the older dog if you're out there selecting? Okay. Uh, so if you can tell, I I don't have a set system that I'm like, every dog that comes to me goes through these steps because a lot of times I'm training other people's dogs that you know they want to put detection on or I'm um, I'm not, I don't have a police dog training program where I'm specifically selecting the dogs to suit me. Um, that said, if I could make the selection, I like to start with a younger dog. Um, you know, I, I would say puppies, but you don't always know what you're going to get. But I think when it comes to, um, at least for detection tasks, if I can evaluate um, the confidence and the hunt drive, I've had pretty good success with the puppies I've worked with. And I like the fact that they're a blank slate and you're not competing for their attention. You know, when you get an older, um, an older puppy, a young green dog that's had, um, you know, foundation bite work and 
um, lots of work, you know, sort of stimulus yeah, and problem building and drive. Um, yeah. You know, they're, they come out and they're usually their heads on a swivel. Um, and those are the dogs that I find are tough. You know, they don't know a marker. Um, they may not be as interested in food because they're, you know, looking what, at everything that's going around them. And of course this is a broad generalization. Um, but I would prefer to start with a little bit younger dog or a, a puppy that has the traits I'm looking for. Um, you know, of course that's not always the most time effective, um, approach, but when I'm evaluating, um, I guess I'll start off talking about evaluating a younger dog. I don't think it would vary too much. Um, hunt drive and nerves are the biggest things for me. Um, I mean, I feel like there's hunt drive nerves and then food drive. I mean, if you have those three things, I think you can have a pretty good dog. And, um, you know, the breeds I'm looking at labs and herders typically all have make good use of their ability to use their noses. Um, so if the dog is old enough, I will see how they hunt for a toy. Um, if it's a younger puppy, I'll usually throw some food on the ground and just see how well they use their noses to look for food. And that also allows me to evaluate their food drive. Um, and then environmental nerves, um, taking them to different, you know, somewhere they've never been on different surfaces, seeing how they negotiate, um, unstable surfaces and, and surfaces of different heights, how they respond to noises, um, how they interact with new people in the room. And I don't necessarily want the dog that's really gregarious and going up and greeting everybody. I want a dog that's, that's pretty neutral. Um, you know, social, if someone approaches them, but isn't soliciting attention because I'd rather them be task focused. If there's food on the floor and there's people in the room, or if there's a toy and there's people, I'd rather them be focused on the toy or the, you know, the food than, than the people. Um, and with older dogs as well, I, you know, taking them new places and making sure nothing is going to shake them. Environment. I mean, you know, of course, something is always going to catch any dog. You know, no dog is so bomb proof that nothing affects. You know, those dogs. I'm a little worried that is everything okay upstairs if if you're unaffected by everything. Um, but you know, my detection dogs have to be able to ride in all sorts of vehicles, and they have to be able to jump and climb on things and crawl underneath things, and you know, walk on unstable surfaces. So age appropriate, but that's where I put the biggest emphasis. And then, you know, will they search for something of value in new environments? It's, you know, I have a lot of people that they, they want to teach their dogs detection and they're like, my dog search is great at home in my kitchen or, you know, my basement or my backyard. And we take the dog somewhere new and suddenly that, you know, whatever they were searching for no longer matters. Um, so I want to see that that dog stays focused on whatever the item of value is and, and looking for it um, regardless of the distractions. So would you say your number one thing that disqualifies dogs when you're looking at or selecting dogs is probably environmental issues? You know, it's, it's really kind of a toss up uh, environmental issues and hunt drive. Um, and I am not, you know, even if the dog has great food drive, 
I've taken dogs before that I've said, okay, you know, this dog has really good food drive. I think I could get him to hunt for it and just not been happy with the results. I mean, I, you know, I've gotten the job done. I, yeah, I would say environmental would be the main deal breaker for me. If a dog is afraid of things that it's going to encounter in the, in the environment, I can't overcome that. Um, or I don't want to do is necessary to overcome that. Cause I don't, it's the least of least, the least one that you can predict what the yeah. outcome will be because you can never predict your environment yeah. all the time. Yeah. And I just don't feel yeah. comfortable saying, okay, this dog will be fine. And then having it break down. Um, but a dog that doesn't have, uh, I don't want to say intense hunt drive because I've seen dogs that don't hunt with a ton of, you know, out of the box intensity, but they're consistent and they, you know, their persist the persistence of hunt is what's important to me. I, you know, I love to see a dog that's fast and intense, but I've seen some really great dogs that are slow and methodical and just don't. Oh, absolutely. Um, no. And that's, it's a very good point because when looking at dogs, there's dogs that were just, like you said, they're all over the place. Their intensity is high, but their effectiveness in their search technique is poor. So they expend so much energy going all over the place that their effectiveness and locating something dwindles because they waste so much energy and they eventually do it. And then the, uh, the other end of that equation is that one that's super slow and methodical that, yeah, it'll probably find it, but then it may take us a year to get there. So, so the, the, of course, the best balance is, is finding that middle ground. What I have learned is also some of the stuff you kind of hit on is by doing those search games, you're also helping the animal learn search technique. You know, uh, like you said, they come to the table with their abilities. You know, just like any athlete, can we take that natural ability and can we help push it or morph it into a more effective way, a, a better producing way? And again, controlling the environment, allowing that animal to search that environment and find success through the limiting of variables or increasing of variables uh, helps build that reliability and that success um, versus just the blind of, okay, let them go, you know, or the stimulation, they get, you know, the, the handler or trainer out there waving the toy around, doing all this crazy stuff that cuts that, that dog off who's already extremely highly motivated to go out and search. And then they're like, hey, yeah, he's just looking for stuff or yeah, it takes him forever because they're all over the place. Well, you, you stepped on the gas pedal before you let him go. So these are things that are going to happen. Um, so it's, it, you again, back to everything else, it requires some flexibility as a trainer to adapt to that animal in front of you to apply the best method, best method for uh, teaching a technique. And then, of course, detection, it's the effectiveness of the search, the odor recognition, and then behavior after odor recognition. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the bottom line is it, it's getting... I think it's getting more difficult to find well-rounded dogs, especially if you're looking for dual purpose dogs. Oh yeah. So I've found having the ability to adapt and say, okay, you know, this dog could really benefit from some scented retrieves. And, you know, this dog really is, you know, bang on with the hunt drive. We can go right to, you know, teaching an indication and, um, you know, getting them searching for odor. So, you know, I have a hard time sticking to a uh, cut and dry. This is how I train every single dog because, you know, every single dog is different. Um, you know, and 
in an ideal world, I would have all the money in the world to spend and, you know, to travel and go find the perfect dogs. But, you know, having the flexibility to adapt your method, I think is, is beneficial for, you know, if you have a dog that may not fit perfectly into the box, you know, you can shape it and still wind up with a, a really nice working dog. Oh, yeah. One of the things that was told to me early on by a good German friend of mine when I lived in Germany going through the uh, police dog training over there um, said to me, he goes, a great trainer is this. You can take one way and train five dogs and get five different results. Or as a trainer, you can take those five dogs, be flexible and apply five different techniques and get one result, which is the one you want. Mm -hmm. So, you know, having that rigid system and not being flexible and you take dogs of different personalities, you're going to get different results. But if you're a trainer and you see that individual dog in front of you and you can adapt to that, each dog you have, you'll get that one result, what you want, which is that consistency, reliability of whatever it is that you're training. Mm -hmm. So I've never forgot that. That's one of the things I always apply. And you kind of, you know, said the same thing he said, just a different way. Uh But, but so taking this, wrapping this up here, you brought up a good thing, uh, the talent code, the book. I get a lot of people that email me uh, or message me or what have you, always asking for materials, that were, what they should read, what they could look into. So off the top of your head, what would you suggest as good reads or what are some good books? And then what might be some good places to go to uh, online to enhance their uh, academic background, such as that you did without necessarily having to pay that college tuition? (laughs) (laughs) I think you told me you were going to ask me this question, but I meant to to think about it in advance, but I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Um, So I really like to learn about the neuroscience and the academic coming things from the academic perspective of the psychology of learning. Um, So I don't know if my choices would benefit people who don't really like to nerd out on things. Um, We have lots of nerds (laughs) on our our podcast, so please do. That's good. I picked up a book and I haven't finished it yet, but I'm, I really like it because I feel like it, it's a very good overview of, a variety of different topics and ha- and she cites her references really well. So if you just want to go down the rabbit hole on certain top- topics, um, it's called the science of consequences by let's say, I, don't know, I have it somewhere. <laughs> we'll just put science of consequences science and, of and consequences. Then a, a good motivated listener will go find it. Yeah. It, I mean, if you look up the science of consequences and I can tell you later on with the, the author's name is, I think it's Susan something. Um, it, it just really delves into operant conditioning, classical conditioning, essentially the consequences of behavior. And she talks about all sorts of different studies that have been done and what the results were. Um, and I like books that I can go and I can look at the references list and and look up a study and then read about, you know, more in depth about that study. Um, Mm. so it's definitely, you know, coming at behavior from the scientific academic perspective. Um, but she's not really presenting an opinion. She's more presenting resources and okay. trying to give a background of different, um, different topics and different ideas. So I think that one would be a good, um, 
reference. The talent code, I think it was interesting. Um, mm-hmm. But it's really not, I mean, it, I feel like you, I mean, it's an easy read. You can kind of get through it pretty quickly and, and walk away with a little bit of knowledge that basically practicing skills on the edge mm-hmm. of your ability helps you process information faster, faster because of myelination of neurons. Um, mm-hmm. I like reading Skinner. Um, okay. I read on behavior about behavior. Sorry. My uh-huh. class was, um, or about behaviorism. Okay. My class was titled one thing. Um, just because I feel like it really, you know, we always talk about Skinner and we talk about the, um, studies he's done and his findings and we use his terms, but mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people have actually read Skinner and sure. sitting down and reading, um, that book. And then there's another one that I really like, but of course I didn't think about it ahead of time. If you, I'll say, if you want, you can email it to me afterwards and then I'll put it in the show notes. So that way, uh, the, that, that would be a good idea it. because I'm, okay, I, perfect. um, but really, you know, I've read a number of excerpts from, Skinner's writing and papers he's written and a couple of different books. And I feel like it just gives better insight into the research he was doing and how he was doing it and the findings and how it could apply to what we're doing. Um, I also, it's a pretty thick book, but behave by Robert Sapolsky. Um, if you're really into kind of just the neuroscience, neurophysiology, not just relating to dogs, but, humans and animals in general. Um, and you want to know about neurotransmitters and neurochemistry. Um, that book is really interesting. It's just pretty dense. Um, but it's called behave by Robert Sapolsky and he's got a lot of good lectures online. He's the one that he did a lecture on, um, the value of jackpotting rewards and how I'll say the dopamine one. Yep. Um, yep. and there's a lot. Really awesome. Yeah. It, it's so good. If, if if any of you guys can get out on the internet, there, I'm sure whether your phone or whatever, um, look up the science of dopamine and its effects and why we work. Yeah, it's um, it, the videos he has are really awesome to hear him describe certain things and why we do certain things, and it all comes down. I and I reference it all the time. Mm-hmm. The expectation of reward is higher value than getting the reward itself and the mm-hmm. dopamine dump that happens once you get reward versus at its height when you don't know when it's going to happen, but you're expecting it. It's really good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of stuff I sit around watching videos and reading about. Um, Cause I just think if we can learn how to, to know what's going on inside the dog's brain and you know, what's triggering different neurotransmitter releases, I think we could really take our training to the next level. So, but it's not really something you can read and say, okay, this is helping me learn to be a better trainer. Sure. That's just great information of why we do certain things or why the dogs do certain things. Yep. So what's ahead for you? And, uh, and as you wrap that up, what, uh, how can people find you? Um, so right now, uh, probably the best way to find me would be on Facebook. Um, because my website is not up yet. Uh, your dog can too is my business name. Um, that would be the best way for people to contact me, but I can okay. also 
you know, if you want to put Which in the notes my email address, that's fine too. Yeah, I'll, I'll link your, or I'll, I'll, like I said, make the reference to your uh, Facebook page. That would be the easiest way. And I'm in Fredericksburg, Virginia right now, uh, at least for the time being. Um, Till I can steal you out to Las Vegas. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm more than happy to go out west. I just have to get out of this house. Um, yeah. I'm doing a lot of pet obedience, but I have clients that come to me for private coaching and detection, tracking, mm-hmm. obedience, um, you know, prepping for competition. So I love to just have a variety. Um, got some things planned as far as seminars and maybe working with some people in the future, but all that's kind of tentative. Um, sure. but I think for the time being, I'll be here in Virginia at least for another year. Um, my long-term goal is to go back and get my PhD. Um, I'm just kind of sorting out exactly what direction I want to go. So I may, Absolutely. I may step back from the professional Training. And go back to college again. Yes, because I love it. Um, <laughs> I love learning, and I love you know realizing all the stuff that I don't know as well as I thought I did. And then oh, yeah. I, I'm still going to train my own dogs and probably select dogs on the side. But well, as I say, what most people obviously who don't know your name or don't know who you are, uh, Ariel's really, really good with that young dog category. Um, puppy development to the young dog development and selection. Uh, those of you, when you, if you don't know who she is, look her up, watch some of the videos that she's doing with her dogs um, because it, it is really great application of what we've learned through science and psychology being applied to us in the dog world and allowing us to learn versus just going off that tradition. So if you go out there and you get to watch what she has out there, you'll pick up some really great things. Uh, or if you're interested in, in reaching out to her, she has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to those categories of that young dog, uh, puppy to adolescent. Uh, that would be great help for many of you that uh, even ask me for questions from time to time, because sometimes I would even defer my questions towards her. So that way uh, you get the best information out there. So with that said, I am, like I said, so glad you got to come on the show. I'm sure we'll have you on again at a different point. Um, And thank you for your time. And I hope our listeners got even more information from this than they expected. And I hope it helps you uh, get your name more well-known out there for those skills that you have that we just just, uh, talked about. So again, thank you again. Thank you for having me. And it's always fun to chat with you. So it was nice that we finally were able to get this set up. Absolutely. I know we've been trying back and forth and now we finally got it. So, uh, in a little while, probably in a few weeks, you'll, you'll get on talking sense finally. (laughs) (laughs) Again, thank you. That concludes this episode with Ariel Peldunis. I do need to make a correction. When I first introduced her, I said her degree was in behavioral science. It was actually in biology and neuroscience. And of course, as you got to hear in that episode, she does have a vast experience in behavioral sciences. Next episode, episode 11, is an outstanding episode. I get to sit down and interview my friend Simon Prinz. Some of you may know Simon. Uh, Simon is a Dutch police dog, canine handler, and trainer. He was tasked with the extensive project of the goal to train a detection dog to basically work autonomously or like a robot through basic commands uh, via signals, audio, and different things. And in that interview, we'll cover some of that stuff. 
He worked at the uh, Scent and Dog Center in Nunspeet. That's where I met him. Of course, he's moved on and does more now. Uh, he also does a lot of education and training for people that do nose work. So let me tell you, that episode is packed full of lots of great information. So stay tuned for episode 11, which will drop in a couple weeks. Thank you again, everybody, for listening to this episode. And I'll talk to you in the next one. Don't miss out on the world's largest law enforcement canine training conference coming to the McCormick Center in Chicago, Illinois, this August. HITS has the most diverse class schedule to fit your training needs. And with over 100 vendors, you'll find everything you need to gear up for your next shift. Register today and save at www.hitscanine.net.